Well, this morning we come to chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, where Paul begins a pretty extensive teaching on giving. In fact, his teaching on giving continues clear through the ninth chapter. Now, that presents me with a couple of preaching options. You know, I can begin a four-week series on giving today, or I can cover both chapters in one sermon. Now, the preacher in me wants to take it slowly and explore the text in detail, but talking about money for four weeks in a row might reinforce the impression that all the church cares about is money. Now, I would risk that misunderstanding if I really thought we lacked understanding in this matter and needed to be challenged to rethink it. But our giving over the years and the checks we've been receiving every week in the mail from those who are unable to give in person due to the threat of COVID-19 has made it pretty obvious that most of us already understand our role as stewards and give accordingly. In fact, the giving of Chatham Christian Church is excellent and is considerably above the national averages on giving. And with that in mind, let's explore what Paul had to say to the church in Corinth, a church whose record on giving wasn't nearly as good as ours. Now, having said that, I don't want you to assume there is nothing more for us to learn about giving. In fact, as Paul here addresses the matter of giving, he interestingly ties together grace and giving. And he ties it into something we might actually call the grace of giving. He begins by referring to the grace of God and then speaks of giving as a gracious work, holding up the grace of our Lord Jesus as an example of sacrificial giving. He then ends with a reference to the surpassing grace of God in our lives. It wouldn't be a stretch to even suggest that Paul here pictures giving itself as a grace, as he did in Romans, when he noted that the ability to give liberally was a gift, a grace. It's the same Greek word, a grace, a gift from the Holy Spirit. And here he gives us giving as a grace from two perspectives, that of the giver and the receiver. In the giver's life, because it comes from a heart that's been touched by the grace of God, and in the receiver's life, because it's a blessing that brings joy and delight. So giving is without a doubt a grace. And let's look at it as such this morning. Noting, first of all, that it can be evidenced in some, even where it's not expected. Beginning now, the eighth chapter of our study in 2 Corinthians. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. 
For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. You may recall that Paul was writing this letter from Macedonia, the province that included the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. He had gone there hoping to get news from Titus about the church in Corinth. But while there, the churches informed him that they wanted to contribute to the fund he was collecting for the saints in Jerusalem. Judea had been hit by a severe famine, and the Christians there were in real need. You know, the Romans took care of fellow citizens, and Jews around the world sent relief supplies to the Jews in Jerusalem, but the saints were left with nothing unless Christians came to their aid. So Paul was raising money from the churches he visited to help care for them. Apparently, however, he hadn't asked the churches of Macedonia to help because they were undergoing a great deal of hardship themselves. Paul says they were in deep poverty. The word he used refers to beggars in need. They were in no condition, it would seem, to do anything for anyone else. So Paul hadn't asked. When they heard of the need, they begged Paul to let them have a part in the collection. They begged for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now, Paul hadn't expected this. But when they gave themselves to the Lord, their poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, and they gave far beyond what anyone would have expected. You know, no professional fundraiser in his right mind would have gone to the poorest churches in the area, churches filled with Christians who almost had to beg for a living and tried to raise funds. But that's where Paul found liberal givers. And it's not a bad word, liberal, when it's used in this context, okay? You know, that shouldn't surprise us, though, that he found liberal givers there. It really shouldn't surprise us. It's not those with overflowing bank accounts who meet our financial needs week in and week out. They are met by financially limited, often in-debt believers who have given themselves to the Lord. And indeed, giving yourself to the Lord is the first step to gracious giving. And those who do so can confidently write a check to the church even before the bills are paid and the groceries are bought. Those in Macedonia had discovered the grace of giving. Those in Corinth, not so much. So Paul encouraged them to follow through on what they knew they should be doing. Verses 6 through 12. Consequently, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, 
See that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And I give my opinion this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not Apparently, Titus had told the Corinthians of the need in Jerusalem the year before, and they had expressed a desire to do something about it. Their good intentions, however, had waned as the day to pay came closer. So Paul sought to encourage them to think through this matter of giving once again. He recognized that they abounded in all else, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, and earnestness as believers, but suggested that they might need to prove the sincerity of their love, as my dad used to say, by putting their money where their mouth was. Now, that may seem a little crude, but that's what he's getting at. Apparently, they were starting to make excuses about not having as much as they'd like to have and therefore not being able to do what they'd like to do. They were probably just trying to justify giving less than they had planned. But Paul told them not to worry about what they didn't have, but to just be honest about what they did have. And to, of course, remember that Jesus gave up everything for them. He gave up the riches of heaven and made himself poor to enrich their lives. Paul wanted them to think about that as they counted their coins. I think he'd have us do the same as we write our checks. Paul then goes on to make sure they understood he was not asking them to sacrifice so someone else could live on easy street. He wasn't trying to make anyone rich. Indeed, the grace of giving is for the benefit of all. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want, that their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. No one should get rich off the giving of Christians. And that includes preachers, even those with huge media followings and those who deem themselves CEOs. We don't give to make someone rich. We give to meet needs. Paul wasn't asking the Corinthians to make themselves poor so saints in Jerusalem could build fancy buildings pad their pews, 
or buy state-of-the-art equipment to go online. He didn't want the Corinthian Christians eating oatmeal so those in Jerusalem could eat steak, unless they had a problem with their cholesterol. He simply wanted them to use the abundance God had sent their way to help those who were in need. He spoke of a need for equality. Now, I do not believe he was saying all funds should go into a central pool and be shared evenly with everyone. He wasn't even saying it would be wrong for one church to have padded pews unless they all had padded pews. He was simply saying God gives us opportunities to help those in need, so when we have a need, they'll be able to help us. The equality comes from opportunities to be both the giving and receiving ends of Christian charity. God wants us to have opportunities both to help and to receive help so we'll learn to depend on one another and to watch out for one another. It's wrong for a Christian to sit idly by with a fat bank account while a brother goes without food. Or for a church to store up excessive money for emergencies that they may have in the future when there are legitimate emergencies in other churches or on the mission field. Now, we must not squander funds or be poor stewards, but we shouldn't sit on huge contingency funds when legitimate needs already exist in the kingdom. Then Paul shares with us the steps he took to make sure there was no question how the funds were handled once they were collected, that they were handled in the sight of all. But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. And we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread throughout all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. We have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Paul was very careful to take precautions that no one should discredit him in the administration of this generous gift. He made sure that reputable and honest men accompanied Titus to Corinth to assist in the collection. He wanted to make sure that the way they handled the funds was not only honorable in the sight of God, but also in the sight of men. They were very careful to abide by the old Chinese saying, 
in a field of melons, do not stoop to tie your shoes. <laughs> he wanted there to be no question in anyone's mind about how the funds were handled and whether or not they got where they were intended to go. I think it's vital that churches and parachurch organizations follow Paul's example in this. You know, every month, we publish a financial statement that is a record not only of our account balances, but of receipts and expenses. Before COVID, when we handed out bulletins at our morning worship service, we included them in the bulletins. Now they're simply placed in the information rack in the hallway. If you haven't done so, I encourage you to take one. We've actually got two months' worth out there, as well as the projection for the year. Take those items and read them carefully. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask. You know, every year we ask the congregation to approve that the financial projection is in keeping with good stewardship. And we keep our financial activities open and transparent so you know that we're doing what you expect us to do with the funds you entrust to us. Our records are made public to assure that the money is in safekeeping and to keep those entrusted unaffected by covetousness. This is interesting. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of your reason for boasting about us. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boasted about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I've sent the brethren that are boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, should be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. There was no need for Paul to go into detail about the need in Jerusalem. They were aware of it and had committed themselves to doing something about it the year before. In fact, he had told the Macedonians of the Corinthians' readiness and zeal in this matter. He was a little concerned, however, that since so much time had passed, and since during that time they had apparently accumulated a sizable amount for the collection, that they might have had second thoughts about giving it. You know, it's one thing to say, I'll start saving to be able to give next year. And it's quite another to take that pile of money and hand it over without thinking, that's a lot of money. I could sure use some of that for a need I have. And the larger the sum of money involved, the more likely it is that covetousness will slip in. That's, quite frankly, one reason many of us give our tithes and offerings 
on a weekly basis. Now, 10% of one's income is a pretty healthy amount in these inflated days, even 10% of one week's income. So the sooner we get the tithe out of our house, the less it's apt to find itself migrating to other needs. Now, having said that, I do realize some of us budget on a biweekly or monthly basis and find it convenient to figure a tithe on that schedule. And to be quite frank, Dave really likes seeing a big offering at the beginning of each month. It enables him to send out mission checks the first week of the month and then deal with other bills as they come in. And that's a good thing on a couple of levels. Not only does it enable our funds to get where they need to go as quickly as possible, but it keeps us as a church from thinking about other ways to spend that money. Congregationally and individually, we need to get funds where they're supposed to go as quickly and responsibly as possible. Not only will that help avoid the temptation of covetousness, but the sooner we get the funds where they're supposed to go, the sooner they will result in thanksgiving to God. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having a sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, that they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. If God's people give with the right attitude and for the right reasons, God will bless their liberality. He will see to it that they always have enough to do what he would like them to do. If we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. But not to gorge ourselves and live sumptuously. We'll have plenty for all the good deeds he wants us to do. Now that says a lot about our motivation for giving. Now it is true that we were promised in Malachi that if we'll tithe to the Lord, 
He'll open up the windows of heaven and pour out for us a blessing until there is no more need. And some popular preachers proclaim that means if you'll tithe, God will make you rich and bless you with luxuries. On that basis, they tell us to give because you can't outgive God, painting visions of, of wealth in our heads. But that's not what Paul's trying to do here. In fact, James warns us that we ask and do not receive because we ask with wrong motives. So we may spend it on our pleasures. That's not the reason to ask or to give. We give liberally to meet our brother's needs. And God pours out his blessing so we will be able to continue meeting those needs until there is no more need. That's the promise. And that's what results in thanksgiving to God. There is certainly grace in giving. And as we think about the grace of giving this morning, let's make sure to remember God's indescribable gift to us. That's what motivates us to give ourselves to him. And that's what enables us to say, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving to us an indescribable gift. And thank you for changing our hearts and our priorities. And thank you for the privilege of making financial contributions to that which is the most important work in the world, the work of the kingdom. Thank you for giving us a very specific way to, to judge our level of participation, setting a, a bottom line for us to follow and then encouraging us to give as our heart leads. I'm so grateful, Father, for this church. Through this past year, when many of our brothers and sisters are hurting financially and other churches are, are struggling, you've blessed us. Our people have given, they've given faithfully. We've met all of our projected needs. We've been able to accomplish things we never even anticipated. We've been able to send extra money to to our missions, and we're so grateful for that. We trust that that has led to praise to you and for your goodness. Continue to guide us, Father. There are uncertain days ahead. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. We try to be good stewards. We make adequate preparation when it's possible. But our faith is in you. We're not afraid to empty our bank account if need be. So our brothers and sisters can eat and have the things they need. Thank you for challenging us. For equipping us. Enabling us. To be servants who are found faithful. In a very pragmatic matter. That of giving. I thank you for this church. 
and ask your continued blessing on us in Christ's name. Amen.